Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I am sitting in studio in Tucson, Arizona at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey. How are you, brother? I'm doing great. <laughs> doing great. Good, good. A very full program we have in front of us today. So Indeed. Very exciting. Indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. This is A Reason for Hope. This is a weekday Bible answer program where you, the audience, ask our Bible knowledgeable uh, staff here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson questions about the Christian worldview, about the Bible, about whether or not Christianity is true and reasonable, how to apply the scriptures to our lives, how to properly interpret them, and of course with that comes all kinds of questions that you might have, and so we would encourage you to join us, and there are multiple ways that you can do that. Uh, you can join us, of course, online as we live stream simultaneously to Facebook and YouTube and our church website. And those locations are as follows. So if you go to Facebook, just look for us, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And of course, use the chat section during the live stream to ask your questions. <clears throat> if you want to join us instead of on Facebook, I, I think you do need a Facebook account. If you don't have one, you can join us on YouTube, which I don't think you need a YouTube account to, to watch. And actually, you might have to have one to uh, a Google account to ask a question, but uh, that's pretty simple. Go to YouTube, A Reason for Hope 546 is our handle. And uh, of course, if you want to avoid social media altogether, uh, you can just go to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com and just hit that watch live tab and you can see the live stream there. We also have a little comment box and a little nifty button. If you want to make a prayer request, you can do that. So we'd encourage you to take advantage of that if you'd like. And um, <clears throat> and that way you can engage with us on the program. Now, if you want to look up our archives, we do have our program archived on Rumble. So if you like that platform and you want to go and look at past programs, we have them categorized by questions asked during that program. You can do that and, uh, and engage with us that way. Also, we have, if you're part of our community, we have a, a nifty Bible app that I'd encourage you to download if you haven't done so yet. You can download it on the Apple or iTunes, uh, I'm sorry, the Apple or Google Play Store. And uh, with this little app, you can not only have a digital Bible engage with uh, messages, uh, teachings, by making notes and highlighting texts, changing translations, etc. But you can also stay in touch with what's going on in the events in our community. So I'd encourage you to download that. Also, we live stream our services uh, to that app as well as all the Amazon Fire and Roku products. So if you have a smart device, you can add us to that and, and follow along. Now, if you do want to ask a question, but you would like to do so maybe a little more discreetly, uh, why don't you take advantage of emailing us? That's at questionsforhope at gmail.com. So if you, again, just want to ask a question via email, just do so at questionsforhope, all spelled out with letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. And last but not least, I'd encourage you to follow our senior pastor on X, formerly Twitter, and his handle is ScottR4H. That's at ScottR4H. That being said, there you go. <laughs> uh, we'll take a moment to pray, and then we'll get right to your questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's do that, Father. On uh, this day, nine eleven, Lord, uh, we come before you, and we remember those who are still grieving the loss of uh, those whose lives were tragically cut short because of the fanaticism of uh, the individuals uh, who inflicted uh, their own brand of religious hatred upon the world on that day. There's no other way to describe it. And Lord, we pray that in a very special way you would be near those that are, are grieving those 
that they have immediately lost. And Lord, I pray that you would remind each and every one of us that there are no guarantees, not a single person who walked into those trade towers uh, on 9-11 thought that this was going to be their last day. Not a single one of those first responders uh, that heard the alarm thought that they were going to be anywhere else but uh, home with their families after their shifts. Uh, Lord, life is a very precious and, uh, and valuable thing. And it's a very fleeting thing in many ways. And so I pray uh, that along with answering questions, uh, if there are any within the sound of our voice happening across this podcast or a radio broadcast, that you would uh, cause them uh, to take a good look at where they stand in light of eternity, uh, that they wouldn't put their hope and their trust in things like thinking they're a pretty good person or if you grade on the curve, I'm sure it's going to be okay. Or someone told me they saw a light at the end of the tunnel, so I'm sure I'm all right. Uh, Lord, we thank you that Jesus came to answer fully and completely uh, the biggest question of all, what must, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And the answer is very, very plain. You say that the one who hears your words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not enter into judgment, but is passed from life into death. And so I pray that before this broadcast is over, there might be many people who would uh, solidify that decision. Maybe they are interested in spiritual things, but they've never said to you, Lord, uh, I want to put my faith and trust in you. I believe, Jesus, you died for me and rose from the dead, and I want you in my life to please forgive uh, me my sins and, and to make me a brand new person. Lord, I pray that there would be many that would end up being born again as a result of uh, simply making that decision to say yes to a saving relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, for the somberness and seriousness of this day. But we thank you, Lord, again, for a reminder that not even death itself can separate us from your love. So we pray that this broadcast would highlight these things, guide us uh, into the questions that you want to have answered. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much for all who are taking the time to be a part of our Reason for Hope family right now. Minister them, build them up, encourage them, and yeah, Lord, even save some of them for the very first time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for that. And uh, I understand that we have a little, well, today's a big day, a big day in history. And Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, um, you know, it, uh, when I was growing up, uh, people always asked the question, where were you when you heard the news that uh, President John F. Kennedy had been shot? Uh, and that was a really defining moment uh, for an entire uh, generation. Where were you when uh, Walter, Walter Cronkite announced uh, to a watching nation that he had uh, passed away? Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that look at that. But I think another defining moment in the history of our country, in our culture, was where were you when you heard the news uh, about the uh, first plane slamming into the world Trade Center on the uh, the first 9-11. I'll never forget, uh, my wife and I were uh, uh, getting up and getting ready uh, for uh, the work day uh, when a friend of ours called and said, turn on the TV, you won't believe it. And when people say things like that, usually something's up. And uh, we turned on the television uh, just in time to see the second plane uh, smash into the, the Trade Center. And it went on from there. So, you know, again, this uh, anniversary raises some really important questions. Uh, And one of the questions that is most interesting uh, to me that doesn't seem to get answered very much, doesn't seem to get dealt with uh, very much, uh, is this. Of all the dates on the calendar, why did these terrorists choose 
9-11. And now there are, I've read some speculative things about uh, Muslim uh, numerology and gematria and, and so on. But I don't think you really have to dig that deep uh, to find out exactly why the Muslims chose that day. Uh, one of the things that you have to understand about Islam is that Islam has a uh, very long memory. And uh, their, uh, their point of view, their worldview in life, is that even if they lose a few battles along the way, uh, their victory is uh, assured because it is the will of Allah. It might uh, require an awful long time, but they've got an awful long time to wait because they also believe in the concept of kismet, uh, which is the idea that uh, Allah is uh, in charge of all things and who can really know what his will is. And so you just have to be patient. And sooner or later, uh, you'll see uh, justice uh, visited upon your foes. Uh, that, that's one reason why uh, our uh, entry into uh, Afghanistan uh, was, in a sense, doomed to failure. It's been said that Afghanistan is the graveyard of Western powers because one after another, whether it was the British, uh, whether it was the Russians, whether it was the United States, all these different powers down through now, whether it's the Persians going all the way back uh, to that era, uh, nobody has come out of Afghanistan uh, with uh, anything less than their tail between their legs. Why? Because the people who live there are used to living at a very low level of subsistence. Uh, the Western powers that come in uh, aren't going to be in there for the long haul. They've seen powers come. They've seen them go. They just know they have to make life as uncomfortable for them as they possibly can. And sooner or later, uh, the Taliban walks away with $60 billion worth of U.S. weapons. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's really kind of how it works. But talking about a long memory... Uh, they also have uh, a long memory. It's almost a religion that has uh, grudges built into it uh, because if uh, Islam has been dishonored, uh, then the honor of Islam has to be restored. So what does this have to do with 9-11? Well, 9-11, September 11th on the calendar, uh, is uh, a day that has been redefined as a day of infamy uh, for the Western world. But uh, believe it or not, 9-11 consistently down through history has been a day of defeat and infamy for the Muslim world. Let me give you uh, some examples. Uh, for instance, on 9-11 uh, in 1565, Christian knights broke the Muslim Turk army of the Ottoman Empire at the siege of Malta. Uh, by the way, the siege of Malta uh, was uh, one that was uh, conducted uh, by Suleiman the Magnificent, one of the most uh, famous uh, Muslim generals and caliphs in history. Mm. Uh, the uh, force of the Knights Hospitaller uh, numbered about 500, and they held Malta in a siege against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Sultan had gathered the largest Turkish armada ever assembled, over 140 naval vessels with countless support ships. Uh, the monarchs of Europe understood the high stakes that were involved uh, when uh, the Muslim navy set sail from Istanbul, Queen Elizabeth was quoted as saying, if the Turks should prevail against the Isle of Malta, it is uncertain what further peril might follow the rest of Christendom. Well, the uh, Turks captured one fort, and they had the bodies of the dead knights decapitated and then actually floated their bodies across the bay on mock, mock crucifixes. Well, the knights responded, 
by beheading all their Turkish prisoners and loading their heads into cannons to be fired into the enemy's camp. So if you think that was something that just was invented uh, in Lord of the Rings, you're mistaken. Hmm. Uh, at one point, uh, the Turks ringed several walled towns in Malta with 65 siege guns and fired more than 130,000 cannonballs, uh, the most sustained bombardment in military history. Well, uh, as they did this, Spanish and Italian forces began to land, and that forced the Turks to retreat since they'd already lost a third of their forces, even though uh, these uh, forces were hopelessly outnumbered. About 6,000 fighting men managed to hold Malta against a train army of more than 40,000 uh, Ottoman Turk soldiers. Uh, the victory was so famous throughout Europe that the French philosopher Voltaire claimed that nothing is better known than the siege of Malta. That was on 9-11. Now, if you think that was something, uh, you know, the, the ultimate 9-11 shaming of the forces of Islam and their uh, conviction that Allah was going with them and was going to give them victory took place in 1683. Uh, this was a fight between Christian soldiers and an invading Muslim army of Ottoman Turks, this time at the gates of Vienna, Austria, uh, an army of 200,000 Turks began a siege of the city on the 14th of July. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire joined forces with the King of Poland to face this threat. A force of 80,000 Christian soldiers against uh, this massive multinational collection of 300,000 fighting men with a support staff uh, the Ottoman Turks had of 170,000 more. Well, they didn't count on King John III Sobieski of Poland and his famous cavalry of winged hussars. Uh, they made the largest uh, uh, mounted charge in military history. More than 18,000 horsemen charged against the Muslims uh, with 3,000 Hussars in the vanguard. The Ottoman army was destroyed in only three hours of fighting. Wow. You know, and uh, again, Hungary was freed from Ottoman domination after the battle. Due to this great victory, the Pope granted uh, the Polish king the right to bear the title Defender of the Faith. Hmm. So this was uh, an incredible uh, uh, defeat. Uh, there was another battle in 1697, the Battle of Zenta. Hardly remembered, but uh, another resounding defeat. The Muslims attempting to take back Hungary at this time. Uh, his Christian force uh, was uh, roughly about 35,000. Uh, the massive Ottoman Empire had to cross a river near this town. Uh, and the Imperial Army marched 10 hours at night to ambush them at dawn. The Christian soldiers trapped the Turks against the riverbanks, and many Muslims fell into the river and drowned. The Sultan retreated immediately, left behind 87 cannons, 9,000 baggage carts, 6,000 camels, and 15,000 oxen. The Turks lost at least 30,000 men, including most of the Ottoman Empire's generals. So not quite as much equipment left as what we just had. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, again, uh, Sultan Mustafa II, who was in charge of all this, was overthrown by his own troops. Uh, upon his uh, uh, return to Istanbul, he was locked in a cage for four months where he died from depression. Hmm. So, uh, once again, Hungary and Croatia were freed from Muslim domination. So, September 11th was uh, a, a day uh, not necessarily of infamy, for the West, as much as it was a consistent day on the calendar that Muslims would feel uh, ashamed of. Uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, of all people, 
uh, talked about this. Uh, he said uh, that uh, talking about uh, 9-11, he said fanatics uh, don't make mistakes in terms of choosing dates uh, for their attack. He talked about Timothy McVeigh choosing the anniversary, for instance, of the Waco uh, uh, massacre uh, to uh, conduct his uh, detonation of the Oklahoma City uh, facility. Uh, but then he said this, I think I can make a, persua a persuasive explanation, however. It was on September 11, 1683, that the conquering armies of Islam were met, held, and thrown back at the gates of Vienna. Now, this, of course, is not a date that can only be obscure and of sectarian significance. It can rightly, if tritely, be called a hinge event in human history. The Ottoman Empire never recovered from the defeat. From then on, it was more likely that Christian or Western powers would dominate the Muslim world than the other way around. In our culture, the episode is often forgotten or downplayed, except for people like Hilaire Belloc or G.K. Chesterton. But in the Islamic world, especially among the extremists, it is remembered as a humiliation in itself and a prelude to later ones. The forces of Islamic Jihad in Gaza uh, once published a statement saying they could not be satisfied until all of the properties that were once owned by Islam, including Spanish Andalusia, as it was known as a Muslim province, have been restored to the faithful as well. He said this, if my speculation is correct, then whoever wanted to destroy the hearts of New York and Washington was animated by something more than a recent grievance over with the West Bank uh, or the Iraqi sanctions. Hmm. So those memories go way, way, way back. So uh, the fact that this date was chosen, uh, the, the fact that, uh, boy, there's uh, <laughs> some other uh, red-letter date aspects of this. They're very, very sad, by the way. Uh, today, for instance, and you know how I try to stay away from openly criticizing uh, people for political reasons, but this is beyond the pale. The Biden administration chose today, of all days, to announce the uh, completion of the agreement with the Iranians where the Iranians will receive six billion, with a B, of previously frozen funds uh, in exchange for the release of five, count them, five uh, prisoners that Iran is holding who have dual Iranian-American citizenship. Wow. And the Iranians also get back five prisoners of their own, uh, members of the Iranian uh, Secret Service uh, that were captured in the United States. Wow, so, so our prisoners are worth $1.2 pl plus a person. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, just uh, what, a, what a terrible day mm. to do such a thing. Uh, the Washington Free Beacon also uh, ran a story earlier where, a, as if to rub salt in the wound, a uh, leading Iranian official said, well, of course we helped facilitate the 9-11 attacks. We were the ones that got these guys into the country. Wow. Now, whether he's woofing or not, we don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of different ideas about uh, which uh, foreign services and so on uh, helped uh, equip yeah. and train and uh, fund uh, the 9-11 attackers. But uh, to see these sort of things on 9-11 is uh, really uh, very disconcerting uh, indeed. And uh, I, I would just think the tone deafness of announcing an agreement like this mm. on a day like this where uh, there is no doubt in anyone's mind that the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the entire world uh, is uh, the forces of uh, the mad mullahs. So uh, very, 
very disconcerting things indeed. Um, when we see these sort of things happening, we have to understand that uh, you know people say, well, why would someone do that sort of thing? Why, why would you uh, willingly fly an airplane into uh, a building like that, knowing that you are going to die as well, where there's a theological reason behind that? In Islam, there is no hope uh, no certainty of a hope of salvation. You can follow the five pillars of Islam all of your life, and if Allah is in a bad mood for whatever reason you get there, you're out. And uh, there are tales of what hell looks like uh, in uh, the uh, hadiths and the sunnahs and so forth uh, are very lurid, very, very vivid. Uh, it's not some place where you ever want to go. There is only one way that you can have full assurance of entering into everlasting life, and that is dying in jihad, dying for the cause of Allah. Uh, the Iranians, when they were fighting the Iraqis back during the Iran-Iraq war, when uh, Saddam Hussein was uh, our friend, uh, uh, were incredibly outclassed as far as the kind of weaponry that they had. Uh, they had old uh, leftovers from when the Shah was running things, but uh, the Iraqis had state-of-the-art equipment. We were backing the Iraqis during that time. But the Iranians had a very interesting tactic in their battles against the Iraqis. Uh, they would uh, come against uh, these very highly equipped and uh, lethal forced uh, uh, given weapons uh, with human wave attacks. Uh, and a human wave attack works like this. You send wave after wave after wave of people until the uh, other side runs out of ammo. And then if you're lucky enough to be at the back of the human wave attack, you swarm to victory. Well, how do you motivate somebody to run straight on into automatic weapons fire and so on, just one person after being mowed down? And they all did so willingly. Hmm. Well, interestingly, after the battle, they, they were picking up the pieces. They found that all of these uh, individuals had been slaughtered had one thing in common. They all had a white key, a white plastic key in their pocket. And uh, when one of the prisoners of war was interrogated about the meaning of the white plastic key, he said, well, before the attack, uh, the mullahs came to us and told us that if we lay down our lives in jihad, that this would be our key into uh, Islamic paradise we'd be guaranteed eternal life among other things yeah so uh hmm. you know if you want to be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're not going to hell their theology says there's only one way to do it wow. and uh, and so you can see the twistedness of spiritual warfare and how satan deals in false doctrine yeah there's truth behind that yes there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned Yes, we don't want to spend eternity in a place uh, of eternal punishment uh, and torment, not necessarily torture, as we talk about on the program, but we want to be sure about it. And so they provide that security, that certainty. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that they're completely taking the word of an Iranian cleric who has never seen heaven or hell. Mm -hmm. Now, very interesting secondhand info now people will say well you know what's the difference between that and you know uh you know christians dying for the faith well let's take the apostles uh we're told that 11 out of the 12 after judas iscariot passed away uh died brutal grisly deaths for their faith 
Peter crucified upside down. Uh, Matthew uh, shot through with arrows. The list goes on and on. We could talk about the, the incredible brutality of all of these things. And all they had to do to prevent their deaths was simply say, oh, we made all this stuff up. You know, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Just kidding. Yeah, JK. <laughs> uh, okay, we learned our lessons. Don't worry about that. We'll go back to Galilee and take up fishing again. But to a man, they refused. Now, interesting, uh, you know, these individuals died these brutal grisly deaths, uh, not for a philosophy, not for a feeling, not for a way of life or a culture, not taking the word of some Islamic cleric who says, yeah, this is really gonna work. Never been there personally, but good luck. You know, in, in the book of, uh, of Acts chapter four, uh, we are told that when Peter and John were called on the carpet by the same seasoned group of political power brokers who railroaded Jesus into his death and warned in no uncertain terms never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. This was, by the way, after uh, healing a guy who'd been lame from birth at the gate beautiful. They couldn't deny the miracle, so they opted for the shut up, he explained, uh, mentality of debate. So Peter and John's answer was fascinating. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God, you be the judge. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Mm. Now, Peter and John were perfectly willing to die at this, at this moment, but not for philosophy, not for a feeling, not for, say, some cultural bias that they had that went back centuries. They were willing to die because they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Christianity stands or falls on that. Jesus' famous statement in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. Mm. And so we can look back in time and say to ourselves, all right, the disciples died for this belief. But you know, people say, well, you know, uh, people you know, die uh, for their, their beliefs all the time. You know, what makes this so different? Well, what makes this so different was they were dying for a historical fact that they themselves had experienced. And this brings up a great principle that Josh McDowell, I think, first made popular. Don Stewart talks about it as well. And it's this, why die for a lie? Now, the disciples were all perfectly willing to die for the statement that Jesus literally had risen from the dead. But, uh, you know, what if they were lying? You know, I mean, you know, let, let's face it, people, you know, lie and, and, and they die all the time. What, what makes this so different? Well, a religious person that has kind of as their moral framework that lying is not a good thing, not something that pleases God or their God, whatever God you want to you name, uh, you know, that raises a really important issue. You know, when uh, a person dies like charging into automatic weapons fire with a white plastic key in their car. They're very sincere. Can't get more sincere than that. Mm -hmm. But they're not dying for firsthand information. They're dying for something somebody told them. All of these disciples were willing to die for what they had seen and heard. Now, people will die for sincerely held beliefs, but you're going to have to really uh dig to find someone who is willing to lay down their life for what they know is a known lie, mm. especially a lie 
uh, on the scale and proportion of the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, who, by the way, uh, described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus laid great stress on truth-telling. So Yeah, they had good first-hand information what heaven was going to be like or is like, yeah. and that those who follow Christ will actually be there rather yeah. than, like you said, second-hand or not even second-hand, just a third party just saying, well, I think this is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I think it was Bill Maher that got into all kinds of trouble uh, by saying, uh, well, one thing you can say about those 9-11 hijackers, uh, they had a lot of guts, mm. and people are like, how can you say anything positive about these people? They were maniacs. They were madmen. I don't think so. They were just sincerely committed to their religious framework, what their mullahs had told them. Well, when they're told that not only is America and Israel Satan and the great Satan, right? but you know, we're, it's the epitome of evil. So they're fighting the good fight in their minds. They're fighting against evil. Yeah, and, and you've been over there. You've been to uh, Muslim countries. You probably encounter that very same mindset, don't oh, yeah. you? Oh yeah. Even during my Q and A time, just arguing with me is doing jihad. So they're participating in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, nine eleven. Uh, kill anybody, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, nine eleven. Uh, just a, a really, I think, significant day to take mm. a step back, and it does raise these kind of questions: mm. Is sincerity uh, a belief enough to make a religious conviction valid um you can be sincere but you can be sincerely wrong uh the the difference that we would suggest as to christianity mm -hmm. is that jesus in fact did rise from the dead uh, we have the evidence of good history we have eyewitness testimony we have the riddle of the empty tomb anybody that says jesus yeah. didn't rise from the dead has to solve that one uh, we have the overwhelming change in the life of the disciples. We have the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus mm. fulfilled and said he was going to fulfill in his death and resurrection. And finally, we have our own experience with the risen Christ mm. changing our lives. So on a day like this, I think it's really important in a society that tends to believe sincerity is the queen of virtues. And it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. When it comes to life or death matters, sincerity is not enough. Uh, you know, I can go to a doctor and uh, say, you know, the, the, you know, you know, doctor, you know, I'm not really feeling well. They do all these tests. Doctor comes back and says, oh, yeah, you're in bad shape. I, I don't even think you're going to live. I'd say, well, well, what should we do? And if the doctor looked at me and said, well, just do what you feel is sincerely best in your set of stuff. Far be it from me to put my trip on you. You know, if you feel it's right, we could put a cast on your arm. We could take out your appendix. Uh, you know, we can do a little liposuction, uh, whatever you'd like. Uh, you know, if a doctor said that to me, I'd be probably running out in the unfashionable hospital gown looking for another doctor. Because when it's life and death, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that precision and truth really matters, that sincerity is not enough. And when it comes to eternal life or the other consequence, being separated from God forever, the same thing is very, very true. And we need to remember that on 9-11. Indeed. I, I was reading a book to my son, and uh, it was a really good book about, and the, the main moral of the story is to, above all else, love, seek, and honor truth. And it was a really interesting story of this these characters and this son who was adopted and he had a good father, but his... Son, his father that abandoned him was like the evil person of the whole island and 
and this he was going to have this prominent position that was available to him as a college student at the warrior school really mm-hmm. interesting little kids book yeah. by christian authors and and uh he thought, well, gosh, everyone thinks that my dad's this good guy, and I'll probably get the position. But if I find out that my actual dad, my biological father, is the bad guy, well, then I'll get kicked out of the school. And, of course, he was given the medal and started being brought to this prominent position, and he just remembered his father's words about, no matter what, love the truth, and in the end, it'll be victorious for you, even if things go bad, even if things go south. The truth is more important. Right, and he decided to come forward and go. You go, you know, guys. That that, that guy actually is my dad, but I was adopted as a little cub, and because he's a tiger, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I was okay. I was raised by this, <laughs> but I, but he technically he's not my. And they kicked him out, and, and there was no happy ending other than his father um, blessing him with another very pro- much more prominent role, where his son didn't know if his dad was actually going to pick him to be the king of the whole nation but it was like his honesty proved it and so the whole point of why i'm sharing this is that that's the 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 important ethic jesus didn't say i am the way and a faith he said i am the way and the truth right and that's what really separates um the christian worldview Uh, and that's what i tell my audiences whenever i have spoken is that i don't tell you this because i was born in it i wasn't raised in it I tell you this because it's true, and if it were not true, I would tell you to believe something else. But it, right. it's true, and I those those facts and that 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 reality is outside of my own family beliefs and feelings. Right, right. That's awesome. Well, uh, thanks uh, for sharing all those. I, I I had no idea about that history. That's really really interesting. Yeah, and uh, again, I would just really encourage you in our audience be in prayer for uh, the families of uh the uh the uh people that lost their lives mm. in 9-11 there seems to be sort of a spin going on in the news that it's not that big of a deal and uh you know people are asking why wasn't the president there at uh you know the uh the trade center uh memorial uh, today you know why wasn't donald trump there all these different questions mm. along this line um Politicians almost are looking at it like it's all old news, mm. but it's fascinating because well, it was 22 years ago. You know, I mean, come on. You know, did you know that 22 years after Pearl Harbor, John F. Kennedy went to Pearl Harbor to commemorate the event? Wow. So I don't think it's old news. Well, President uh, Biden did talk about it, but he did it in Alaska for some reason. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> so <laughs> I was in uh, I was in Kolkata, Calcutta. Or Kolkata, as they say it now. But uh, I had just finished a tour in Bangladesh, and I was Kolkata. Kolkata. That's no baloney, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was in India. I just finished a couple week tour in Bangladesh, and uh, saw the second plane go into the building on a at the uh, gate where I was waiting to get on my aircraft to take my flight to Bangalore. Wow. Crazy. I was the only white dude in the whole room, and it was a little... Was everybody just, staring at you? They like, were looking yeah. at me as yeah. well as the screen. They're yeah. like, wow, I wonder what he's thinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we've got some questions we'd like to get to. Um, it's a little quiet on the interwebs, but um, uh, Susie wanted to know about Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, asking, is this a prophecy of the transfiguration? Uh, John the Baptist, the two witnesses, or all three? Okay, well, Malachi chapter 4, 
verses 5 through 6, is a famous uh, biblical prophecy. There uh, we read this uh, in pretty much the last two lines, what we would call the Old Testament. Kind of wraps up with this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, this prophecy that Elijah the prophet would come is one that we see here. Uh, We see that it was deeply woven into the messianic expectations of the people of Jesus' day. Uh, when John the Baptist came on the scene and began to preach and people began to recognize that the power of God was definitely upon this guy, even though he didn't do any miracles, he spoke like no other, uh, dressed uh, in a uh, camel's hair jacket, (laughs) I guess we could say, with a leather belt around his waist, uh, looking an awful lot like Elijah. Uh, You know, there were those who had to ask him just point blank, uh, are you Elijah? And he said, no. Uh, are you the prophet? Uh, the, that is the prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 where uh, Moses said, a prophet like me will rise uh, for, uh, among you and that everyone who listen, doesn't listen to him will be cut off from the people. He said, no, I'm not. He goes, well, who are you? He says, well, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and applies it to himself. This other prophet, this other prophecy that we find here in Malachi chapter 4 uh, verses 5 through 6 is very interesting. In that, in Matthew chapter 11, when uh, John the Baptist had been arrested by uh, Herod for meddling in his uh, personal and private life, I guess he didn't recognize the uh, uh, separation of church and mind, or state, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> But, uh, but anyway, thrown in, in jail, uh, this guy that was used to the wide open spaces you know, yeah. and confined just had to be you know, incredibly challenging to him. We're told that Herod listened to John preach often mm-hmm. and did many things, but never released him. And so uh, John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus saying, are you the promised one or should we look for someone else? Mm-hmm. You know, and this was the guy uh, who looked at Jesus at one point and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you can see that, that John the Baptist was very, very human like the rest of us. And Jesus was doing miracles here and uh, said, You tell him what's going on here, that the blind see and the mute speak and the deaf hear and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he said, Blessed is he who is not offended or stumbled because of me. Mm. Uh, meaning that, his mission was going to be very different than even what John the Baptist expected uh, Messiah to do. Uh, so, you know, again, Jesus talked about John the Baptist. When you went out to the wilderness to see John the Baptist, what did you expect to see? You know, someone, you know, dressed in fine clothes? No, those people live in palaces. Uh, you know, a, a reed blown by the wind? Uh, no, you came to see a prophet, and more than a prophet. And then Jesus makes an interesting statement. He said, if you can accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, when Jesus made that statement, some people will look at that and say, oh, see, it's reincarnation. Uh, Elijah was reborn into uh, John the Baptist when he was conceived uh, by Elizabeth in her old age. Well, no, we can exclude that because John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, said of his son after 
God had rendered him mute for not believing for a time. Uh, when he said his, he wrote down his name is going to be John. He said, why John? Why don't you name after one of your ancestors or Zachariah Jr. or something like that. <laughs> and as soon as he was able to speak, he said, he is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And, you know, and so John the Baptist was Elijah-like. Mm -hmm. He wasn't Elijah. He was Elijah-like in that what we see here in Malachi chapter 4 is that when Jesus comes back again, leading up to his return, the prophet Elijah, the actual prophet Elijah, is going to come on the scene. We take a look at the book of Revelation chapter 11, where it talks about the two prophets that are going to come on the scene in the last days and have this tremendous worldwide impacting ministry. Well, you know, one of the, there's a lot of debates about who the identity of these two prophets. Uh, but one of the things that's usually not debated is one out of the two is Elijah. Mm. Why? Because he calls down fire out of heaven, just like Elijah did at Mount Carmel. Uh, he has a, the ability to stop rain in the world for three and a half years, just like Elijah did. Mm. Uh, I tend to believe it's Elijah and Moses. Uh, you know, you can pick your other uh, notable Old Testament personality. Well, those and, are two at the Transfiguration. Yeah, and, and once again, when we see this prophecy in Malachi, that, that uh, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I strike the earth with a curse. Now, we see a, what is called a near and a far fulfillment here. Mm. We see that Elijah is going to come on the scene. John the Baptist coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, preparing the hearts of the people of Israel to be able to receive the Lord, this ministry of reconciliation that is being prophesied here. But there's also a prediction here that Elijah, with a capital E, was gonna come on the scene before the coming of Messiah. Now this happens twice, as you mentioned. Uh, in the book of Matthew, uh, you might recall that Jesus made the statement that there are some here who will not die before they see the kingdom of God come in power. Then Matthew 17, he, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. We believe it's Mount Hermon. And uh, we're told that Jesus' appearance was transfigured. His face shone like the sun in its mm -hmm. radiance. His clothing became white as lightning. Uh, and then suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and were discussing with Jesus, according to Luke's account, fascinating, his departure. The Greek word there, interestingly, is his exodon. We get our term exodus from that. Well, what happened at the exodus? Uh, God's people were freed from slavery in bondage in Egypt. Well, when Jesus died for us, we were freed from slavery to sin, self, and Satan. Wow. So that same exodon was being discussed there. Boy, would that be a Bible study to sit in on. Uh, but then we were told that the entire mountain was, uh, you know, again, Peter chirped in and said, um, it's good we're here. Uh, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and Elijah. Now, some people just believe that that was gibberish or that Peter was hysterical, but it's a very spiritually informed statement because in Zechariah chapter 14, we are told that the one Jewish feast that is going to be mandatory for everyone in the world is going to be the Feast of Tabernacles. That is the, the feast of the millennial kingdom. It's gonna be characteristic of it. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is this uh, sense a recreation for the kids of camping out 
just like the people of Israel did in their wilderness wandering. And I'm sure it was kind of a highlight on the calendar of kids who's you know, a kid who doesn't like to sleep under the stars and camp out in these, you know, impromptu thatched, uh, uh, you know, uh, structures, these impromptu tabernacles that were going on there. Well, it's the uh, main celebration that's going to be characteristic of when Messiah comes to rule and reign. So when Peter said that, uh, he was saying he was saying something pretty scripturally intelligent. He goes, "Oh, I guess the kingdom's come. This is it. This is it. Hmm. So we'll we'll kick it off." The way Zechariah told us to, we'll make you guys tabernacles and we'll go on from there. We'll go down and teach those Romans a thing or two in a little bit. Uh, you know, but then we're told that a cloud covered the mountain and then the voice came from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And then suddenly they found themselves alone with just Jesus. Moses mm -hmm. and Elijah were gone. So we do see Malachi being pre-filled there if you will because at messiah's first coming when jesus came to pay the price for the sins of the world moses and elijah did show up prior to that time we do see when jesus is going to return again physically to earth moses and elijah are going to show up in this preparatory uh, manner that they're going to have this worldwide impact if you will uh, and so does this tie into the mount of transfiguration yes but not only the Mount of Transfiguration. It also tells us that this Elijah-like pre preparing ministry uh, was going to go on and that even leading up to Jesus' second coming, uh, we're told that uh, when the Antichrist finally gets to kill uh, Moses and Elijah, uh, that the entire world throws kind of a satanic Xmas. They send gifts to one another and the whole world sees their bodies lying there in Jerusalem. Well, prior to the advent of the internet and uh, worldwide broadcast, something like that couldn't happen. The whole world couldn't see one event at once, but they're going to be so grateful to the Antichrist for killing these guys. Why? Because we are told they tormented them so much. And I don't think it was just because of the, uh, the power that they had uh, to demonstrate the power of God. I think it was their message that was so tormenting to those who were rejecting God at that particular time. So we see it's kind of a both and, not an either or. A lot woven into uh, those last two scriptures in the Old Testament. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, thank you for that. And thank you, for, uh, Susie, for the question. I hope that was helpful for you. And if you need any clar clarification, please feel free to uh, chime back in again soon. Uh, Robert Block wants to know <clears throat> a little bit, a couple of questions. Uh, he says, good evening, Miss Pacha which I guess means family in Hebrew, according to Robert. Thank yep. you. Uh, I have a comment and a question. Uh, it's based on God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.4. So my comment is, I believe, according to the scripture, we will not remember any of this old life or even remember regrets or pains because the former things have passed away. But I believe the only place we will remember is things we have done or not done for the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. My question is, do you think, in light of Revelation 21.4, we will remember any of this life or not? Just wanted your thoughts and comments. Thanks and God bless. I think we will. Um, you know, again, there are, are some that will point to passages like uh, Isaiah 66, where it says that the former days will not be thought of or brought to mind ever again. Uh, I think it, 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 the, the context of that would be kind of the, uh, the warning 
that we receive in the book of Ecclesiastes from Solomon. Uh, Do not say to yourself, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you say this. <laughs> you know, when people start, oh, the good old days. And I remember back, you know, when we used to have tin cans and a string, and that was the way we would afford these newfangled interwebs. And things were much better. Well, some things were better. Some things weren't. Uh, we don't really have to worry about polio, for instance, uh, these days. And, and uh, I remember uh, we got cable TV where I was in California, but by cable TV, it just meant there was one antenna that was up on this, uh, this high mountain. And then you all kind of hooked into it. We got, uh, six channels. Wow. I think. Um, so, you know, mm. funny how we always found something to watch. Now we've got how many channels and there's still nothing on too many. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but the, 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 the bottom line in, in all of this is that when we take a look at how we're going to see and understand uh, life in eternity when it says God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's a picture of comfort. It's a fulfillment of what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Uh, One thing that is uh, absolutely in harmony with God's beautiful attributes in his personality is he is a God of comfort. And, uh, you know, when we talk about heaven and uh, we talk about uh, the emotion there, we talk about everlasting joy will be upon our heads and so on. Uh, you know, people will say, well, uh, yeah, but, uh, how can I, how can I have everlasting joy? If say, for instance, I know there are loved ones of mine who didn't make it to heaven. Well, God just do a memory wipe of that. Um, you know, some people say, well, how could I have everlasting joy when I realize how many things I did that dishonored Jesus and how many ways I failed and blew it, uh, during that time, they'll point to first Corinthians three about the person who is saved yet is through the flames and has nothing to show for this life, no eternal rewards. How could a person like that have everlasting joy in their life? Well, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is this. When we get to heaven, First uh, John chapter 3 tells us that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Mm. Uh, we're going to have uh, the good work that God began in us to conform us to the image of Christ. It's going to be completed at that particular time. And, you know, although we will uh, retain our individuality, uh, we're going to be perfected glorified examples of who we are. First Corinthians 15 says we're going to be so different from who we are right now. It's going to be like the difference between a shriveled up little seed and a full grown tree when it's, it's finally uh, done with the process. Mm. Very, very different. But different doesn't mean that, you know, somehow God's going to do a memory wipe on me. I think it was Don Stewart who said, uh, you know, when he was asked the question, well, we know of people in, in heaven. He says, well, it's hard for me to believe that I'm going to be smarter here than I, I'm going to be. I don't think I can get dumber when I get to heaven. You know, and so when we talk about God wiping away every tear from our eyes, I think we are going to see the enormity of our salvation with Christ-like clarity. And this is what I mean by that. Uh, when Jesus looked at Jerusalem, right, we're told he wept over the city when he was going to raise elijah or i should say lazarus from the dead 
he wept. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the entire Bible. Uh, you know, when he saw what death and sin had done to people, and even the, the hardness of unbelief. I do believe that we will, in a perfected way, share the character of Jesus that's referred to mm. in Isaiah 53, where it says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Mm. Here, sorrow and grief are shot through, literally woven through with sin and despair. But when we get there and we see the Lord, I believe we will weep. I believe we will take a look at uh, not just our lives and how fallen and frail we've always been, but also we're going to see the enormity of what Jesus has done hmm. for us. Um, you know, I, I think about the night of my conversion at that movie theater in Oxnard, California, where it was a Billy Graham film called A Time to Run, and this Christian musician, Randy Stonehill, sang the song that was called I Love You, and it said Jesus came into the world to show us the way and set us all free. And when he died, he was saying, I love you. Well, it was like God caused the pieces of the puzzle to come together for me at that moment mm -hmm. because it was about a month or so before that my football coach around our FCA group read an article from the Journal of the American Medical Association on the physical death of Jesus from a doctor's point of view. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard in my entire life uh, you know, what Jesus went through was scourging or, or how he was so savaged before you got to the cross, before he got to the cross, you could hardly recognize him as a human being anymore. And it was like all that suffering really hit me. It hit me hard even as a non-Christian. I thought, oh, you know, he was such a good man and, you know, he suffered that way, you know, but I, I was sad in the same sense I was sad about John F. Kennedy dying or Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln. You know, what a tr tragic thing, you know, that this, this good man died like that. But at that moment, when that song sang about that, it was like something clicked and I understood that when Jesus died, it wasn't just tragedy. Mm. It wasn't just uh, the enormity of the, the horrible brutality of what happens to good people in this world, that the Lord through his spirit spoke to me and said, I did that for you personally. Mm. And I'm sitting with my wow. football buddies and my coaches down the aisle and I don't want him to think that I'm some hypocrite, you know, that I've been going to his meetings and not believing in God at all or anything like that. But I just wept. Mm. I just wept. I was just, I mean, it wasn't just a few tears. I just found myself sobbing. Mm. And I believe that same kind of sobbing is going to be an experience that we have in heaven when we fully understand the width, the length, the depth, and the height that Jesus' love demonstrated to us when he took our place dying on the cross. And when it says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, yeah, we're going to experience the enormity of that, but we're also going to see it through the lens mm. of God's comfort and his compassion. We aren't just going to be beating ourselves up in some kind of puritanical kind of a way forever saying, oh, I'm a worm and all this other stuff. We're not only going to see the enormity of the price that Jesus paid to save us personally, how much he loved us, the depth of his love. But we're also going to experience the height of his love, mm. realizing that nothing will separate us from the love of God mm. from that time onward. You know, and, and so uh, I guess we could define heavenly joy, his sense is bittersweet, mm -hmm. because uh, we'll see Jesus as the Lamb of God yeah. who takes away the sin of the world. We'll see that he died for us. We'll, we'll be in awe of all of that, and, and yet, one of these emotions isn't going to cancel out the other.
Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus was a man of sorrows, but we're also told in Hebrews chapter one that God anointed him with the oil of gladness more than his yeah. companions. He's the most joyful person you ever met. Yeah, so we'll, we'll the, experience both of those in our, our Christ-like character. Because of the joy set before him. Right, right. So in, a, in one way, those sobbing tears you experienced were one of, yes, conviction of sin, but more importantly and probably more powerfully is the joy yeah, and I n- gratitude. I, I never felt worse and I never felt better. Yeah, that's... You know, I, I, I was just so overwhelmed mm-hmm. that God could love someone like me who had said such things about him, you know, and had been so mean to his people mm. on a regular basis. And, and yet I was just in awe, in a sense, mm. of how much he loved me at oh. that same, same moment. I'm mm. sure those of you listening and watching probably say something very, very similar. That's, mm. what, that's what a real encounter with Jesus is all about. What a great place to end the broadcast thank you so much for joining us and if you were touched by that we'd encourage you to just go before the lord right now and say lord jesus not by might (laughs) not by power but by your spirit Uh, we are saved by god's loving grace and we really are grateful for your time spending with us and we'll be here again tomorrow same place time same time so uh, have a wonderful evening and god bless you You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.